Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Ad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Greasers, I hope you're having an okay week. I know I've mentioned it previously. I'm so sorry if you've already heard it. Feel free to press that 30-second skip button, but um, I have written a book. It's coming out in January next year. You can pre-order it now. It's called You Are Not Alone, and it's uh, based on everything I've learned from the podcast from talking to all these amazing people and a bit of my story as well. If you'd like to pre-order it, you can click the link on the Twitter bio at The Griefcast, and I would very much appreciate that. Thank you. This week, I'm talking to the absolutely fantastic and inspirational Stephanie Whittles-Wax. Stephanie is the co-founder and chief creative officer of Lemonada Media, a podcast network that, in their own words, makes life suck less, which we all can definitely appreciate. She co-created and hosts Last Day, which is Lemonada's award-winning flagship show, confronting massive epidemics with humour, compassion and a quest for progress. It is an amazing podcast, Last Day. Um, Have a listen to it if you haven't already covers really really tough subjects in the most in-depth and heartfelt way and I think if you enjoy this show you'll definitely enjoy that show and the network they've created Lemonada is just yeah incredible absolutely brilliant what she's been doing she's also the best-selling author of Everything is Horrible and Wonderful a tragic comic memoir of genius heroine love and loss Stephanie came in to talk to me about her brother Harris Whittles who was a very well-known hugely respected Uh, writer, producer, comedian, he wrote for Parks and Rec, he wrote for Master of None, who lost his life to heroin addiction. So, Stephanie, who are we remembering today? So today we are remembering my little brother, Harris Whittles. Harris Whittles. Do you have more than one sibling? I do not. So this is my only sibling, only brother, uh, real bummer to lose (laughs) when you're the only. I I grew up as as a pair and then had to shift my understanding of the world to be singular. And that's been a really uh, terrible part of all of this. I liked being a pair. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can understand. And how long ago did Harris die? So he died in February of 2015. Um, it was February 19th, the day before my birthday, mm. uh, which has <laughs> been 
also lovely, a parting gift, yeah, if you will, yeah. that he that he left that he left me with. But yeah, it's been horrible, and and you know, uh, it changes all the time. Mm-hmm. It's been such a trip because I accidentally wrote a book <laughs> after my brother died, <laughs> <laughs> and it was critical for me to do that. Mm-hmm. I started writing. And it was the only thing I could do through my acute grief, I think I'd like to call it, um, where I was only an open grieving wound, Mm. right? There was just like no other thing that mattered. I couldn't see any other thing. The only thing that was in my ability to to see or focus on was sorrow. And I didn't want to talk to anybody. I didn't want to get out of bed. I had a one-year-old at the oh time, so I – correct. Yeah. That is the correct response. <laughs> so I had to Fuck. pretend to be a human for her, and that really depleted me. So I was I was very aware of, like, okay, you have to smile mm. at your child. Um, and that took a lot of energy. Yeah. And so I didn't have any leftover for my husband or for my friends or for my family or for my job, my students I taught at the time. So I started writing. And I think writing for that year after was monumental. Mm. It was it was like I was able to kind of look back and be present and remember. I, I was like so aware of the fact that I was going to stop remembering him. And so I needed to capture as much memory as I could. So it was sort of this exercise that I did to get through this moment and then – so I don't know. I was processing it from the start, yeah. you know, kind of unintentionally. I think that's really amazing. And I, I'm so I've I've just finished writing a book accidentally about grief. <laughs> Congrats! And I, and I and I'm sorry. Yeah, and I know how you feel. It's like, but um, I find it really interesting when people write from the beginning. So obviously, my dad died when I was 15, and you know, I was very young, and I just couldn't write anything down. And I found my diaries recently, and there was one entry that spoke about it, like one. Because I just found the idea of even committing it to ink was like, it's real. But I've met so many people who like just instantly wrote things down. And I find that, I think it's very healthy, that instant processing to kind of recognize, oh, this needs to go somewhere, like immediately. I find that kind of interesting that you, to be self-aware enough to go, mm, this is not, I can't sit with this. <laughs> like this needs to go on a page. I don't even, you know, it's so wild though, because I don't even think it was self-awareness. Mm. Like I, I don't even think I was aware that I was doing it. I wasn't, in fact. What, what happened, the first thing that I wrote was the eulogy. Right. So I wrote the eulogy and I remember I was spending a lot of time doing it in the aftermath, like in in the week following his death. He was stuck in L.A. at the coroner's office. It was horrible. We couldn't get him back. And we were in Texas at the time. And I didn't know what to do. I was so – we're Jewish and you're supposed to bury Mm. your loved ones soon. And we couldn't because we couldn't get him back. And so there was a lot of angst. And my husband ended up printing out the eulogy that I'd written. And the printer cataloged how many hours I had been writing. Yeah, yeah. And so it – it ca- it spit out on a cover sheet that I had edited it for 26 hours. Wow. And I had no idea. I had no concept of time or space. Mm. But I remember seeing that and thinking, whoa, like that is a lot of hours. And so I think there was something that was happening where I didn't 
I wasn't present in the world. I didn't know what to do with myself. My daughter would only nap in the car. So I was like stuck in the car with her, you know, mm-hmm. every yeah. day. Yeah. And um, I was typing notes on my iPhone. Wow. I was just typing out notes because I didn't want to be on social media. It would make me upset to yeah. see other people that were okay and I wasn't. And and then my husband saw this giant note that I had written <laughs> and was like, why don't you put that out as an essay? Why don't you mm. get, it, get it out of your body? Yeah, you know? yeah. And uh, I was like, all right, fine, you know. Um, and like it was amazing how many people read it and – responded to it and found meaning in it and that was also a part of it right I was like oh I don't want to talk to anybody that I know but I'm really (laughs) interested to hear from people I don't know (laughs) laughing as someone who does a podcast about grief like yes (laughs) yes because there's suddenly this like ease isn't it of like oh oh you get it right we don't have to do any crap conversation we can just go immediately to pain brilliant because that's totally. what I wanted. That's what I need to talk about is the pain, and they're yeah. like, mm, "Yes, me too, me too." And you're sort of like <laughs> eating, eating your pain together. Like, yes, 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 you've got 100%. some too. This is so yeah. good. I thought it was just me eating this. Yeah, I can, <laughs> I can fully relate to it. It's interesting as well what you said about the time, because it, it's so hard to explain to people. We use the phrase on this show, like in the club, yeah, in, in the club, the great club yep. that no one wanted yep. to join, but we're, it's very busy. And um, I always say, "Shittiest club, best members." That's- <laughs> That's what I like. Yes, to say. Yeah. that is a, that is that is excellent. That is truly, truly mm-hmm. excellent. Yes, exactly. <laughs> very understanding, empathetic people. I mean, mm-hmm. the, once you get in, it's very friendly. It's totally. just getting in is awful. It's awful. Horrible. It's horrible. We're, like you don't get a tote bag. No. You don't get any swag. Yeah. It, it's truly the shittiest club ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, but you were talking about the time as well, and I think that's what's hard to explain to people not in a club of. You know, because I think people have such an idea of like linear time or normal time. And when you, like you said, you're in grief, like you don't know how long you've done something or where you are or when you last ate or washed or did any of things. So I can completely understand writing something for 26 hours because it just, yeah, you stop existing. And the only thing I've ever compared it to is when I had my first child. And it was that same thing where you'd be like, oh, I've just been trying to get them to sleep for five hours like what I, yeah in my head it was oh that was a tough five minutes um right. and it's right. the same thing like your body is just going through something so massive you it's like those laws don't apply to you anymore it's so true and I the birth of my first child and the death of my brother were so close together yes yes that I was experiencing just so much body pain and mm. suffering and change and just like cellular stuff that I look at that whole time and it's just an absolute blur. I Mm. I think I don't know how I survived it. I don't know. No, especially with a a one-year-old. Like you said that, and that thing about being a parent in that, you know, you, like you said, they, they make it quite clear what they need and they aren't reasonable so you can't be like I'm sorry not today like you said you have to smile at them you have to give and give and you it's a real one way process you're just giving to this thing oh and they need you mm. if you uh, you know it, as the mother in those in those early early days right especially if you're nursing or i mean it's like there is a need for mom yeah. you know that that was like very very clear and and it's hard when you are not available for that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. To find to find that space. God, yeah, and I completely understand what you're saying of like 
you have like 10% to give to the world. And I think if you don't have a one-year-old, you can maybe like, you know, see a friend and smile or like get a train somewhere. Like you can, like, you can complete these things. But when you have a child, like that's the 10% goes on them and that's it. So of course you, everyone else just, how, how can you have that? Um, do you mind me asking how Harris died? What happened? Yeah, fun story. <laughs> um, so he, Harris uh, was a amazing, successful, beloved comedian, uh, TV writer, producer, actor. Um, he wrote for Parks and Recreation. He was brilliant human. Uh, also struggled with addiction. And his time using opioids was pretty short-lived, actually. He, from the time he told me that he was addicted to pills to the time that he overdosed on heroin, it was about two years. So wow. it was awful. I do not wish that on uh, anyone in the world, anyone in the world, even the people I don't like. I don't wish it on them. It is the addiction part itself is absolute madness and wanting so badly to help a person that you love the most and not being able to help them and not being able to reach them and constantly worrying about them and constantly worrying that they're alive or not alive um, or that they're lying to you or that they're not lying to you or that they're using or that it's just a horrible experience and I mm. I my baby was born in the midst of all of this my brother went to rehab when she was one month old wow. for the first time and was in and out of rehab that first year so a lot it was like a lot of angst and anxiety and fear and when he died it became a different kind of yeah sort of trauma right it was like Worrying that he would die was a sort of very specific form of torture. And then once he died, it was it was another one. And um, yeah, it wasn't great. wasn't great. <laughs> Don't recommend. <laughs> Hard Do not recommend. Thumbs down on this trip advisor. Like not thumbs good. down. Don't yeah, go. It's, yeah. it's no stars. Zero stars. <laughs> yeah. Oh. It's such a difficult, and I'm just mindful of ask, even asking you about how it happened and aware of when we're talking about something that's related to addiction and overdosing that we're talking about trauma. And it's hard on the show, but like, you know, my experience is very different. It's a, a cancer death. And I think it's very important that we acknowledge that on this show. I try to with different episodes that, you know, grief comes in all forms. And when grief is wrapped in trauma, that's a very different thing because you're not just dealing with grief. You know, as you said, you had that traumatic year of, well, you know, longer worrying about him and then that death to be wrapped up in that trauma as well and not being able to get him back. There's a lot of things on top of that. There's a phrase they use recently, which is like you described, you just said acute grief earlier, but there's a phrase I've heard as well, which is delayed grief, where something just so momentous happens that you just can't, you can't do your grieving so sometimes it's like you have to care for a, an elderly parent immediately or you have to move house. Do you feel that's something that because of the trauma of what happened that your grief kind of got moved or do you think it was just all wrapped up into this whole process? I mean, there were so many different kinds of grief that were overlapping at that time. So mm. the the grief of of losing a loved one to addiction is also a form of grief. Yeah. Like, he turned into a different person. He was not who I knew. He was not who I grew up with. He was out of his body, out of his mind. Mm. Um, 
so I was kind of like grieving that, like the loss of my brother as I knew him. And then when my daughter was born, she was born with a hearing loss. So she wears hearing aids in both ears and she has since she was a baby. And I had to grieve the loss of this perfect mm. childhood that I had imagined. So I was grieving that. And then I was grieving every time my brother would relapse and go back into rehab. I was grieving. It was like grief upon grief upon grief. And I am extremely connected to how I am feeling. Mm. Very, for better or for worse. Uh, there is no delaying with me. <laughs> Um, I feel all the feelings. I was telling somebody today about that. I don't know if you all have that book on, on your side of the pond, but the bear hunt book. We're going on a bear oh, hunt. Yeah, We're going to catch a big one. It's written by an, uh, yeah, an English poet, Michael Rosen. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So yeah. we love it over here, too. Um, <laughs> you know, you can't go around it. You can't go over it. You have Gotta to go, go through, through it. it. Yeah. I go through it. For everyone around me. I mean, mm. I so I was going through it again and again and again and again. And I think what happened is that once he died, then I was going through it and I just truly shut down. It was mm. like I just was dead. I was mm. like annihilated as a human. I really, truly, I can't remember being <laughs> in my body for an entire year. I was just fully fully grieving mm. fully there was a yeah. phrase i wanted to say earlier um i spoke to she's a writer and broadcaster here called emily dean and she her sister died and very shortly after her both her parents but she described the loss of a sibling in this phrase which has really stuck with me is losing your witness mm. and i think it's that thing she said you know because like the person you can turn to and be like did that do you remember like all mm -hmm. of this like shared knowledge mm -hmm. and i think that yeah i can understand you know what you're saying it's that it's a particular type of grief just losing a sibling but as you said losing a sibling to addiction when you've already lost them previously because they're going through this hideous hideous thing there's there's so much so much to deal with I'm not surprised that that year is a blur like I'm not yeah I'm just truly shut down like I, I I described it as I felt like um a bomb had dropped on my house mm. and everything had been destroyed and I was just sitting on a pile of rubble and nails and dust and garbage. And I couldn't move. And mm -hmm. I was just stuck there. And it was uncomfortable. And I was miserable. But I was stuck. And I just felt completely exposed. There was not a house on me anymore. <laughs> like, it's not comfortable to sleep on nails. <laughs> like, this is, <laughs> this is what it felt like. And, you know, the other end of that, though, that I think not to try to sort of make meaning out of any of this because I, I, I actually don't want to do that. <laughs> but when you have your house destroyed and then you have to rebuild, you get to figure out what kind of house you want to build. Mm. So you get to, do, you get to sort of say like, well, now I have some agency. My entire life was destroyed. So how do I want to live now? Yeah. And what do I want this new structure to be like? How do I want to relate to this new structure? And where do I want to put it? And what kind of wallpaper do I want? And, you know, and, and I think I was much more intentional in the rebuilding than mm -hmm. I had ever been before. I think before, I think we, there's a passivity, right? Like I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and I'm going to yeah. do the right thing and I'm going to do the thing that makes sense. And um, 
that kind of all went away. And I was able to be like, well, I don't like that. And I certainly don't want to spend my time doing that. We could all die tomorrow. So I definitely don't want that. Yeah. Like there was a, a, a rebirth, I would mm. say, that happened after the absolute fucking nightmare of grief. Yeah. We refer to it sometimes in the show as uh, like the fire. I feel like it's like, it's such a weird thing. Like you said, you because everything's awful, but you're sort of given it's superpower isn't the right word (laughs) isn't the right word and I don't like it because it feels like there's like you said a positive spin but it's some some kind of force where like you said you you, like an agency Mm -hmm. where you sort of don't care about a lot of stuff that you used to care about and also everyone else does care so you seem very powerful to these people because they're like wow you don't care and you're like I don't care I don't care what people think don't give a single (laughs) shit like truly could not care less yeah yeah and it doesn't, Great. I always say to people, it doesn't last forever. I think I think it lasts about five-ish years. Mm-hmm. And then slowly you become normal-ish again. And you start sort of thinking, oh, I don't think I should say that to that person. Or like, it like right. creeps back in. But for that brief moment, it's kind of, it's kind of, obviously, no one wants to get to the club. No one wants it. But I found it like nice to be in a world where like, wow, this is what it's like to not give a shit. Wow, this is I know. I see. Okay, like some people don't have to experience grief to get here. I did, and wow, this is how you guys live. Okay, what a, what a what a what a freedom. Yeah, what a, truly, what 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 liberty you must feel. Yeah. it's 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 very it's very true. It's like I do not care about any of the things that all of you care about. Mm. I am caring about completely other things and. There's a perspective that you gain overnight to like none of that bullshit matters. Like the only thing that matters is boom, boom, boom. Mm. And like the list is very short. Yeah, 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 yeah. Quite short. short. Yeah, that's what's weird, isn't it? You're like, oh, it's just that. I thought it was just that, but it's it's been confirmed. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. and yeah. I think you're right. Like once everything's gone, it's such a, you know it's a nice not nice but an eloquent metaphor that you can see clearly right because there's nothing in front of you there is nothing so you can see right through the horizon and be like i see we're all gonna die so this is this is what matters we're all gonna die die. like it was sort of like in the immediate aftermath it was like oh god we're all gonna die and i was (laughs) thinking like oh no every time my husband leaves he's gonna die and every time my daughter leaves she's gonna die and everyone's gonna die everyone's gonna die all the time i had this anxiety that was like crippling and then there was this shift that happened where i was like we're all gonna die (laughs) yay we can do whatever the fuck we want it was like this i mean amazing shift of and i can remember it was like very distinctive of like girlfriend you gotta just like do what you want because it's gonna it's gonna be done soon and who knows what comes after and yeah it's it's very wild and i don't it's hard to talk about it or explain it to anyone that's not in the club oh yeah sounds like a strange thing to even say out loud yeah and i think it can come across as if you're as like you said you're like looking for meaning or being positive or something you're like i'm I'm just being honest like it's not positive it's just this is what's happening i promise you i am not positive there is no (laughs) glass half full around here i am a very glass half empty kind of gal (laughs) everything is terrible and we're all gonna die i get it i get it yes Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. Yeah, I was interested you said that because we talk about that a lot on the show of, of death anxiety. Because we're all going to die is a really helpful, you know, you can feel that and be like, yes, empowering. But then it's like the day to day of like, careful on the road, do, especially with children, you know, because you're going to die. Oh, God, can I somehow control the control I think that we oh seek when we know. And I found that I don't know if that's something you've experienced of just that tension of like, yes, I understand that, you know, life has no meaning and it also has meaning. And now I know this truth, but also the, the minutiae of the day means I'm like, <laughs> like everybody, okay, oh. you didn't text me back. Why didn't you text me back? Like, totally. So oh my gosh, totally. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was always wired anxious. Yeah. Always. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah, like, and this neat, wasn't and like something that like, changed overnight I was like already insane and then it got worse Um, I was already medicated and then I needed to up my dose Um, so yeah it like got me in its grips Mm. honestly so this is this is I think what shifted I was already anxious and I would worry about every little thing and then once the this really bad stuff happened there was a couple of other like really awful things that had happened all at once and I was like yeah you know what bad things did happen and I'm still here. Mm. So I actually do have the capacity to handle things that come at me that I can't control. And I don't have to, as a matter of like living in the world, be so on top of everything mm. all the time because whatever is going to happen is going to happen. Like there, there's a, there's like a, a sense of surrender too yeah. that like, so, but I'm tell- I'm walking that line all the time. Yeah, I yeah, mean, it's, it's it's rough. Uh, it's rough. <laughs> it's rough. I, I can, <laughs> yeah, I can relate to like it. it I was already on the scale, <laughs> and oh, as, yeah. I, as I said to my therapist, it's like then I got some evidence. Well, yeah, proof. That's right. If someone d- doesn't feel very well, they will probably die. Like there we go. That's right. And she was like, but "How many people do you know who didn't die of cancer?" And I was like, "Yeah, but I know one who really did, and it was a pretty important one." So we can weigh up 100%. all the other people, but the evidence statistically, and, I, and that's been such a journey with me of like just trying to be like, you know, not everything, not every creak and ache means someone is ill. Oh my gosh, you know, it's it's, but it's hard. It's really hard to, but I think. It's like you said, it's such a fine line. The amount of like therapy sessions I've been to where I say to the therapist, listen, I am walking around like covering my head because I know the sky is going to follow me. And she'll be like, well, that's just, you know, and I'm like, no, 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 no. Let me just take out my notepad (laughs) and show you all the times that it actually did happen. Right. Like, it's true. It's like this is the this is the data. I know that you're telling me that the black cloud isn't following me, but I have the proof. That actually the world is out to destroy me. It's all right here. Do you want to see? I know. And it's so hard when they're like, yeah, but it doesn't happen every day. You're like, yeah, but when it did happen, it was pretty bad. The day it did it fall on me. Trust me. Awful. I wasn't like, well, that's never happened before. I was like, oh, God, why is this happening? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's such a... Did you turn to counseling? Were you already see kind of in that world? Did you find that oh, bereavement counseling? therapy. <laughs> you were yeah, already yeah, there. Love therapy. Yeah. Love it. I was I was a, an early adopter. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I went to my first therapist at like 13. Wow. I mean, 
Yeah, I, I've been a lifelong student of <laughs> therapy. Um, yeah, and I go in and out. And it's it's interesting because I, I know all the things about me. I know mm. all the, the, the family of origin things and the CBT things. Mm-hmm. And, and I think now I'm able to sort of go in and get a tune-up every now and then. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think anyone who ha- is suffering grief and loss and isn't in therapy I think you're an alien and I think (laughs) that you should come down to earth and find some help because it's just I don't think I I I don't think I would have survived so when I said that I wrote and I didn't talk to anybody I wrote and I talked to my therapist that was the only other human that wasn't a baby that I talked to uh, and and it was like massive. I mean, I credit this person with saving me. Mm. I have so many therapists over the course of my life that I'm like, that person saved me and that person saved me and that person saved me. And you people are superheroes. And thank you so much. And why would everybody not go all the time? Yeah. yeah. It's funny because it took me years. So I didn't go to therapy till I was like in my early 30s. Oh, my about God. Grief. Yeah, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? I guess. Holy shit. Yeah. You went 15 years without. Yeah. 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 Wait a minute. Let me just turn <laughs> the tables. How? How? Well, you, yeah. Did you even like know? Okay, I'm fascinated. Wow. <laughs> well, it's fine. So, what I've discovered from doing this show, it's quite common if you lose a parent at teenage years to delay it because kind and I've met so many teenage grief club members as mm. <clears throat> who have a similar journey because kind of what happens is when you're a teenager you don't really have the words so you kind of mm. kind of get along and are kind of like ignoring it for a bit and then you have your 20s where you just make loads of mistakes but you're like it's just life it's just life and everyone I know mostly 99.9% of people I've spoken to got to their early 30s and were like oh I wonder if this is about my so-and-so dying <laughs> oh and maybe that's a British thing I don't know but it definitely sort of takes I think when it happens to you very young, you run away, you know, you really run away for a long time. And it took me so, because I was so determined not to be defined by it. I was like, no, no, I'm I'm not the girl whose dad died. Like that's that's just one little thing that happened. <laughs> one yeah. insignificant thing and never mind. And then it, it just took that many years for me to go, I think this might be everything. This might be why I am, who I am and all the things I've done all come back to this. But I just fought it for so long. I mean, the other thing there though is like, 15 I I I suffered an acute grief at 15 as well and I think it was a definitive Mm. life experience I think all of my shit like all of my bad human habits Mm. and coping mechanisms and messages to myself come directly to I'm 41 years old now yeah I still am in the shit of being 15 yeah. and it's it's like I, I I can't imagine how I would have gotten through that moment without a therapist you know what I mean because yeah. like I think you're right it's like you're so I don't know a 15 year old girl brain is like uh, not not a great place to be <laughs> I mean a, like the scariest of places yeah, like, yeah I just, it's, terrifying. It's, 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 it's wild and the messages that we we tell ourselves at 15 yeah grief aside trauma aside just like being a normal 15 year old sucks and then put a traumatic event on top of it and it's like 
a minefield. And I think that it just took me a really, really long time to, to look at it. And I think, like you said, that bomb blast thing is such a good metaphor for grief. And I think what I did for ages is just ignore it. Just turn my back and was like, there isn't one. There's there mm. like, and people go, I think you don't have a house. Um, yeah, it's there. You just got, it's fine. If I turn around, it's there. I just wouldn't okay, but look at it. <laughs> did you, did you, like, what was your thing that you did to cope? Like, did you start, okay, so this is what I'm asking because, so I started, I started like working like crazy. Like I oh, started yeah. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, I have to be, a, uh, I have to get straight A's and I have to um, be the lead in the play and I have to like achieve, achieve, achieve and I have to show everyone that I'm like good and stable and, you know, confident and like at 41 I'm still like chronic workaholic do you know what I mean like I still totally use work as a coping mechanism you really this is I feel uh, on the spot now (laughs) like how does she know what when did this become carry on's episode no no I ask the questions (laughs) that's what happens when you interview podcasters yes exactly yeah let's talk about you I know no yeah I and also my dad was a massive workaholic so like I feel like as soon as that energy left our house I was like don't worry guys I got this like and that's what I sort of knew and I learned so I think that's also really and still my go-to still my go-to of like just keep busy and then the voices stop (laughs) like um so yeah Yeah. it's and I don't I mean I on it now I think about it I'm like I don't know what I I think I was in I think I just ignored a lot for a long long time and was furious and just very angry and confused and yeah and then weirdly ended up going into comedy and that's sort of and I've talked about this before like I used to do character comedy and like all my characters had like dead dads like hidden Uh hidden in them and it would like leak out of my writing in a way because I couldn't face it I couldn't sit down and be like this is what happened to me and it wasn't until I started this podcast five years ago that I ever even spoke about it publicly you know friends who'd known me nearly all my life had no idea how I felt about this that I was still upset that I was still grieving because I was just like yeah everything's fine Mm. and I'm doing my comedy and it would just leak out of places and then eventually I was like I said I got to my 30s and I thought okay okay this is enough I'm I'm gonna yeah. do all this like oh and gosh. again yeah you know maybe I don't know maybe it's unfair to say it's a British thing I'm sure there's lots of other people who've been more quick to therapy and I come from like a therapy accepting family as well it wasn't like mm. repressed very very like hippie open self-help courses <laughs> like nobody would have been like judgy at all right. they would have been like right. great great but I think um yeah, I just, yeah, you know, we, we well, you're not ready until you're ready. Yeah, like, you're I, not, wasn't ready. You're, I wasn't you ready. You can't, you can't, you can lead, what is it? Lead yeah, a horse, horse to water. To water. <laughs> you can't make it drink. You can't make a drink. Yeah. <laughs> or have psychoanalysis. <laughs> well, that's right. Exactly. You can lead a horse to a therapist's <laughs> office, but you can't make it talk. But it, it might find something wrong with the way that they sit or their hair and decide it's not for them and, and the therapy's not sure. for them. Sure. <laughs> sure. Totally. So I want to go back to um, you and um, writing, the, sure. just writing the eulogy. So when did you, so you delivered that eulogy. Mm-hmm. How was that? Like, I always think, because obviously I was I was in a very different position. I was very young. Grown-ups took all, all of that stuff. So I never had to face it as a grown-up. I mean, that must have been just heartbreaking. You know, it's, um, oh, yeah. It was so hard. I mean, I, I said in the eulogy, like, I spoke for Harris the first five years of our lives. <laughs> like, he did not speak. I mean, I was like the big sister and I was like on top of everything. And so I felt like it was appropriate <laughs> that I should speak for him in his absence, yeah, you know. Yeah. 
And I think that I had a lifelong perspective on him, mm-hmm. the witness, right? And, you know, he was my favorite person. And I certainly didn't want to get up and deliver this. And I don't know how I got through it. I, I, I mean, I, I've been a performer my whole life. I went to school. I went to NYU for, for theater. And so I, I think I probably like relied on some kind of training mechanism where yeah. I like I understand how to stand up and do something when you don't want to or when your body is telling you like you're nervous, you're in mm. danger. Those people are, you know, like, I used to tell my students when I taught acting, I'd say like, listen, when you get on stage and your heart is like pounding, you're having a fight or flight response. Like the adrenaline is going and like the lights and the people are like basically the buffalo and they're trying to come at you, right? And you're like in danger and you're putting yourself in danger, but like breathe through that and and like it's normal. Your body's reacting normally. Mm -hmm. And so I think there was some probably like breath work that I just innately knew how to do that served me in that moment because like I said, it took me 26 hours to write. It was long. And I think it was really meaningful ultimately to do it. Um, and who else was going to do it? <laughs> like, my parents couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And that kind of was, like, the other thing. Like, I had to do all of it. I had to do all the arrangements. I had to be the executor of the will. Of I had to do all of it (laughs) so you know I'm really good at doing things as we just established (laughs) yeah and that's pretty common as well I've from other performers I've spoken to you know it often is they do the eulogy and and I think you know I can I think we can relate to that personality type perhaps we both can understand of like the doing is how we survive you know it's like i'm useful i'm Truly. useful i'm in control somehow put I, me to work yes put, put me, me to, to work. work put me to work because <laughs> that's the thing of death is the most useless thing you know it's just so useless <sighs> that, that that it can happen and so i feel like anything that makes you feel useful yeah just gives you this like oh this like nourishment which you don't get with grief and i wonder so you know you were talking just to come back to the book that you wrote when I started the podcast, it was the first time I, my grief ever felt useful. And I was like, oh, mm. God, this is like, this is so nice. <laughs> All mm-hmm. this pain. And is that how you felt when you were writing the book? Suddenly there was like, this might help or this might be useful to another person in a situation. I didn't have that when I was writing it. Yeah, yeah. Because I was like, like I said, uh, I was a skeleton who was writing. <laughs> it's like not even on this planet. Um, but I did have that experience when I published the essay Mm. and I got the feedback, like, oh my gosh, I've never been able to articulate this and you articulated it for me. Thank you. I've never been able to describe how this felt and you just described it. It's like, oh, oh, okay. You know, like there, there was a, yeah, wow. So I could help another person? Interesting, okay. And that feels, like you said, like useful, Mm. useful. So I think there was like like a survival instinct that kicked in and the writing helped with that. And then I think when I discovered that it could help others, there was a community sense that kicked in. And, you know, I, I mean, I started this company, Lemonada, with a woman who also lost her brother. And it was like 
this amazing monumental moment to meet another woman who had been through what I had gone through and to say like I know how you feel and I know how you feel and do you want to create a thing to make other people feel less shitty and and that's I mean our whole tagline is like make life suck less like our our sort of like baseline is that it sucks it's hard being a person is the worst like it's all terrible we're all suffering all the time how can we like help people to get out of bed to put their feet on the floor to smile to feel like an ounce of joy to you know so I I think the helping part has come sort of later in the cycle I think there's like grief is so selfish right it's like I can't I mean I was so grateful after a year that I like turned and my husband was still there (laughs) yeah I was like oh thank god I like you so much. I'm so glad you stayed um, because I was the worst. I mean, I didn't clean a dish. I didn't do a chore. I didn't take a shower. I didn't do anything. I mean, I was like the worst, truly not a great partner, you know. And I think when you're in that immediate aftermath, like it just feels very self-involved, you know. Well, you kind of, it's like you said, you know, everything's been blasted from you and it's very hard to focus on anything else (laughs) because you're not, you're not safe, you know, you're not safe. And that's what the world has just informed you. And like you said about acting, you know, that's what your brain tells you when you walk on stage, you're not safe and you have to trick your brain. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And with grief, you can't trick. It's no trick because every time you go to like, hey, just breathe through this. You're like, no, I'm not safe. It's not safe. The world's not safe. People disappear. They get snatched from you. What the fuck? (laughs) Like, that wasn't the deal. And every day that you wake up, you open your eyes and you're like, fuck again. Yeah. Like, I have to do this again. (laughs) I have to like go through this cycle of like, putting my feet on the floor, standing up, putting pants on, like cooking a meal for a person that lives here. Like, what the fuck? I can't do any of that. It was just like that sheer exhaustion Mm. of like, and then waking up every day and remembering, like having to orient yourself again to the fact that like, this is now your reality. I live in a world now where my favorite fucking person is gone. He's never coming back. Mm. That sucks. It is not fair. (laughs) You know, all of this, like, blah. Like, it's just so, it's rough. And and I I like to make jokes. Thank God. (laughs) I can tell you do, too. You know, I feel like that carried me through, I think, on some level. It's like, at least we can, like, joke and laugh and go back to feeling like shit. But I don't know how unfunny people grieve. I really don't. I don't know how. (laughs) I don't know how. <laughs> like, how do you do this? Just really quietly and sadly, I guess. Just like no breaks. But actually, funny enough, so when I started the show, so many people would, like, listeners would come up to me and be, and be like, oh, um, you know, we don't like to say, but we were really laughing around the deathbed. And and it was great that you admitted you did that too. And I was like, we're all doing it. And everyone's pretending, oh, no, we're very serious. And you're like, but actually, everybody is having a moment and laughing and breaking it. And I feel like it's this primal thing where your body like makes you make a joke makes you laugh you know we call it like this you know dark sense of humor morbid humor because it's like your brain needs to remind you if you will laugh again like this is this is real this is a feeling you once had and then it goes you know it's very fleeting those jokes that you horrible jokes you make afterwards but it's like you do it almost like it feels so hollow doesn't it? you kind of (laughs) like you're practicing laughing and then some are like oh yeah 
oh, if I can laugh now, then I will laugh again. Like somehow this pit will get lighter, but it's it's so hard to hold on to that. So I think it's this weird way your brain just wait, patiently is like, it won't be like this forever, but like we yeah, can't let you well, know it, when. Totally. And it's also, like I used to say this to my students too, like humor sounds like human. Like <laughs> you have to, whenever I would see a scene or something that was like, not working. I was like, it's because it's too sad. Yeah, it's not real. Yeah, like yeah. you have to laugh and put humor in because that is truly the thing that keeps us from jumping off bridges. Like that is the thing that keeps us going. It is like humor is the most human thing about all of us, mm. right? It's like it's the it's and it's not jokes. It's like a lightness. Like a it's like yeah. a way to look at the world and I mean, I remember this hilarious moment it was probably like two or three days after Harris died and I had to, you know, write the obituary. And I was like, I uh, am too busy writing the eulogy. So I'm going to need you, husband, to write the obituary. So he wrote it and it was like beautiful. And we turned it into the paper and they were like, that will be $2,500. And I like (laughs) stopped what I was doing and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I was like, I'm going to need you to edit that down to a tight 500. Like, I'm going to need you to. And then I was, like, quoting Big Lebowski. Like, we may be grieving, but we're not saps. Like, I, like you know, I was just like, you know. Tight five, like, like a stand-up set. Like, this is too truly, long. Tight five, tight five. Like, just trim. And then we're, like, yeah. editing the eulogy oh, to save God. money. And then it was so funny, you know. And I was like, this is it. This is life. Yeah. And. Then we went right back to, like, being traumatized and tragedy and grief and all of that. But, you know, and then, like, my mom was, like, complaining that the deli didn't put enough locks on the plate, you know? And it's like, <laughs> it's like that is the thing that matters right now, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, the amount of fish <laughs> on the plate. Like, it's, that's what everyone fucking cares about, mom. You people, know? Are, people are whispering. People walked out because I mean, of the locks, you know? Really, it's like, but I do think that it's... That's like the humanity stuff. That's yeah. like stuff that's so amazing about being a person mm. that we can experience this profound grief and then laugh in the next moment. And then it's just wild. There's this amazing theory um, called dual process model, which is kind of a newer theory of, of grief, like grieving, which is that the process of grieving is oscillating between two states. So there's, you know, there's the grieving, there's the snot and the crying, and then there's the restoration. And actually, if you don't do that restoration, you can't grieve. Like that's how your brain has a has a night off and you watch crap telly or you scroll on your phone. And, and again, I meet so many people who go, oh, I feel so awful, I haven't really thought about it. But it's like, oh, you know, we've been joking. Or I went out and I, I had a drink with my friends and I forgot about it. I'm such a bad person. And and I, I talk about it a lot because I feel like, God, if we just realise like, the brain cannot physically constantly weep, <laughs> like it needs this like oscillation between these states. Yeah. And you go, once you accept that your brain is, you know, it's not, it doesn't mean you didn't love them or you are unkind or you are cold hearted. It's like, it's, it's just really hard to keep up that emotional state without wanting to, like you said, you know, bang your head against a concrete wall until it really like, it's, it's like survival. It's survival. Mm. It's like how we survive. And as humans, we do it by laughing about obituaries or whatever. But yeah, I, I totally, I, t- I think that's right on. And I think if you're not having those moments of recovery, I love that, then 
it's going to be really tough to get to the other side. Mm. And do you feel, how do you feel now, seven years in, seven and a half years in, mm-hmm. you know, we say a lot on the show, like, it's not, you don't get over it. It's, you live with it. Like, do you, but you can come through it. Do you feel like you're in a, you've come through it? You're obviously, you know, nobody's fine. And like, walking <laughs> no, let with... me be clear. I am not fine. <laughs> let me be clear. <laughs> yeah. How are you now? I suppose. How am I now? Um, yeah. You know what? I'm okay. I'm good. I think I'm good. I, I decided, you know, for a long time, I, I didn't want to celebrate my birthday because mm. it was my brother died the day before. And I, uh, was like, all right, I'm just going to be 34 forever, which will be <laughs> fine. And <laughs> my husband for many years would get me a cake that just said day on it just day you know and oh, I oh that's so kind wasn't allowed no one was allowed to sing or we weren't allowed to celebrate and when I turned 40 I was like you know what I have a lot of great shit in my life I have mm-hmm. like two amazing kids I have the best husband I have a great house I live in a great place I have an amazing family I have an a great career I'm so lucky I'm so grateful I'm I I can feel grateful I can feel joy I and I think like I have had to be kind of intentional about that because like I said I can go dark pretty easily it's easy for me to go to the dark side so I think it's been a kind of like amazing kind of renaissance for me personally where I'm like Mm. you know what like everything's good everything's okay and you're allowed to be happy why not fuck it be happy you know like it's it's good you got one time to be here so I think I'm in like another moment of like just accepting that things are pretty okay and it's hard being a parent is so hard and being a working parent is so fucking hard and Mm. you know all of it's hard but um but I do feel a sense of groundedness and a sense of gratitude that feels new. Stephanie, I could talk to you all night. I know. This has been so fun. And I have to tell you, I have to tell you something. I never want to do these grief shows. Like, I really (laughs) don't. I like never do. No, it's because like, I'm so tired of talking about my story. Like I've gotten to a point where I'm just like, I don't want to do it anymore. Anyway, I'm glad that I did. This was really nice. And thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Honestly, It was so nice to talk to you and uh, and be semi-interviewed by you, which <laughs> many have tried. And I'm normally much quicker at being like, no, 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 you're not going to do this. And I was like, oh, no. How did she? Uh, sorry, good. and good. you're welcome. And yeah, that will yeah. be $25. <laughs> you can find out more about Lemonada Media and all their amazing range of podcasts if you head to lemonadamedia.com as in lemon and an ADA. Uh, you can find the Last Day podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And Stephanie's book, Everything is Horrible and Wonderful, a tragic comic memoir of genius, heroine, love and loss is available to buy now. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show was edited by Kate Holland. It was recorded remotely. Um, she was in America, I was in London. And the artwork is provided by Jade Perkin and the music is provided by The Glue Ensemble. And remember... You are not alone.